What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Alec, you're going to have to do it again. Show me the meaning. Uh, that was all right. <laughs> well, my name is Jared. Today I'm joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Alec. Hey. And joining us for the first time is a new writer to the Wisecrack crew. It's Trisha Arand. How's it going, Trisha? It's going great. Good. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, I'm glad that you're here too. So today we're talking about Toy Story 4, directed by Josh Cooley, written by Andrew Stanton and apparently eight other people, starring Tom Hanks, Tim Allen, Annie Potts, Christina Hendricks, and Keanu Reeves. As always, let's go around and get our first impressions. Tell me what you thought about this movie. Tell me about your general relationship to the Toy Story franchise. Let's start with Alec. I'm so sorry. Keanu Reeves is in this? <laughs> He's Duke Kaboom, man. Yeah, come on. Holy sh... Okay. Um, so I had seen Toy Story 1 a long time ago. Don't really have a relationship to the franchise, but I really like this movie, and I was very surprised what it was about. And... I like it because in a weird, perverse way, it's almost like Get Out for Kids. And we can talk more about that later. <laughs> okay. That's not what I took away from it, but interesting. <laughs> so you have not seen two or three at all? Uh, I might have seen two like a long, long time ago, but I've definitely wow. not seen three. All right. Well, at least you've seen one, because if you hadn't seen one, I was about to question if you actually had a childhood. Yeah. I mean, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Trisha, what'd you think? Um, wow. I really, really respect this movie. I think it's really well executed just at really high level. I mean, obviously it's Pixar, so we're not expecting anything else. Yeah. Um, they're, you know, not going to mess around. They waited nine years since the last movie to make this one. It's been in development, I think, for like four or five years. So it, it's great for what it is, which I'm not sure is a Toy Story movie mm. in some ways. Um, but it's really entertaining and really funny. Yeah. So generally give it thumbs up for sure uh but it's fascinating as an entry in like a franchise that's already really well established and of course is a hugely influential franchise as well for sure i thought i mean it was great i mean pixar none of these movies are anything less than perfect on some level yeah but I don't know if it was good enough to justify its existence for me, simply because i thought after toy story 3 they really had the perfect trilogy right toy story 3 is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Yeah. And I've only seen it twice. And only, and because the first time I saw it, I was like, okay, you know, you almost want to check yourself. Like, that was one mm -hmm. of the best movies I've ever seen. That can't be right. Mm -hmm. All right, I'll watch it again. And then I felt that way again the second time. And then I was like, all right, I'm closing the books on this one because I want to, like, maintain that feeling that I have yeah. toward the movie. So Toy Story 3 for me is just freaking amazing. This movie was good, not good enough to where I felt like it should exist. I've been noticing, so there's a lot of movies, a lot of movies I'll watch often, you know, with Wisecrack uh, in mind that I like that people who are really into the franchise don't. And I think maybe it's that I don't watch a ton of movies or don't have like an extreme relationship uh, or love for, for these. So that like when I watch it, a good example is uh, the, the latest Star Wars movie. I really don't care about Star Wars. So when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is good. And everyone else is like, how dare you? Um, and I'm getting a similar vibe from Toy Story because... Yeah, as a standalone movie, and I think you would probably agree, like, it's a good movie, but you have kind of ideological complaints about it existing in the Toy Story universe. Yeah, I don't think that any... For me, it's not... I mean, there's sort of an ideological complaint more. It's For me, it's just the fact that it that there is a Toy Story 4, that it's no longer a trilogy that comes to a definitive end, that now mm. it's just... Now there are installments, Yeah, yeah. is what it feels like. Yeah, I almost I was talking to somebody about it last night and I was like it almost feels like a spin-off movie. Yeah. Like it's sort of like 
you know, in a different era, it might be, and I'm not saying that this is reflective of the quality at all, but it might be like a direct-to-DVD sequel yeah. or direct-to-VHS sequel and, you know, in Disney, where it's like you've got some of the characters and it's in the same universe, but I'm not sure it's part of the same story. And so, again, that's that is not fair to the movie because of how well it's made. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it zooms by. It's hilarious. The theater that I was in, we were busting up laughing. Everybody was laughing. And it's just so much fun to watch and delightful. I, I just don't know if it's like, because you have to have three things, I think, to have a Toy Story movie. You have to have a movie about Woody. You have to have a movie about Buzz. And you have to have a movie about Andy and their relationship to Andy. And you're missing two of those things here, I think. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you mentioned in the theater, and I have a short anecdote to share about my theater experience. So I saw it at the Arclight on Saturday, and there were about six, like, nine-year-old boys, and they were all chaperoned by this one parent, and that one parent was Jack Black. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And the, the funniest thing was there was this – well, they were – not well behaved. Jack Black seemed like he was, at the one hand, trying to maintain his disposition as cool dad and not ruin the kids' fun. But at the same time, he was a little bit like, oh man, these kids. But the funny thing is, one of the kids kept uh, messing with one of the other kids, just constantly pointing him to him and saying, Christopher Nolan is his dad. <laughs> and I just, I just love the image of Jack Black rolling up in a minivan to Christopher Nolan's house and Christopher Nolan like waving as his kid gets into the minivan and is like, bring him back safe, Jack Black. And Jack Black just gives him the thumbs up. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's what I witnessed. They were really obnoxious during the movie. That's but amazing. hey, those, those are yeah. our future bosses. So I what mean, am I going to do? It's the most LA thing ever. But that's like yeah. you, where you said we're at Arclade Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, that happened. <laughs> I generally don't care about celebrity run-ins, but this is a great celebrity run-in story. <laughs> yeah. The whole idea of Jack Black and Chris Nolan's kid being friends at nine years old is just kind of funny to me. I don't yeah. know why. But on the other hand, it's like, of course they are. Of course they are. Of course yeah, they, they are. go to the same school. Of course <laughs> All right, guys, let's go into a recap. So back in the Andy days, Woody attempts to save his girlfriend, Bo Peep, from being donated to another owner. Bo Peep denies his offer to be saved and asks if he wants to go with her and be together. But Woody stays, citing his duty as a toy to be there for Andy. Fast forward to the present where Woody and the gang's new kid, Bonnie, is nervous about her first day in kindergarten. Although she doesn't often pick Woody to be played with, Woody takes on the responsibility of making sure she has the support she needs on her first day. Through his secret aid, Bonnie creates a new toy at school named Forky, a spork crudely pasted together with pipe cleaners and popsicle sticks. Despite Forky wanting to obey his programming to consider himself trash, Woody convinces him that he is, in fact, a toy and Bonnie needs him. On a road trip, Woody investigates an antique shop when he sees clues that Bo Peep was once there. He meets Gabby Gabby, a doll who captures Forky and holds him ransom, saying that she wants Woody's voice box so that she can fix her broken functionality that will enable her to finally find a kid who will love her. Woody reunites with Bo Peep, who is now a kidless free agent living her own life. Together with Buzz and a Canadian toy named Duke Kaboom, they infiltrate the antique shop to rescue Forky. In the process, Gabby claims Woody's voice box and installs it to herself, but despite her voice functioning again, Gabby is rejected by the kid she always thought would take her home. Gabby joins Woody, Buzz, and Bo Peep to return Forky to Bonnie, 
In the process, they see a lost child at a carnival, and Gabby positions herself to comfort the child and give her the confidence to seek help in finding her parents, and is taken home by said kid. Forky's returned to Bonnie, and instead of going back to Bonnie's house, Woody decides to live a free life with Bo Peep, liberating other toys and helping them find kids if that's what they desire. End of movie. All right, guys, before we move on, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at Mubi. So you guys know Mubi. We've talked about it. They're a friend of the podcast. Mubi is a cinema streaming service and also a download service. It is home to the world's largest community of film lovers with over 8 million registered users. Every single film is chosen by a human, not an algorithm. They are cult classics, award-winning masterpieces, forgotten gems, festival-fresh independent releases to the hard-to-find and never-heard-of-before kind of stuff. Every day a new film is added. Mubi is available globally, and there are no ads ever. So uh, today I want to talk about, have you guys, have either, or I'm sure Alec hasn't, but Tricia, have you ever seen the Steven Soderbergh Che films, Che Guevara films? Ooh, you know what? I'm going to go with, I don't think so. Yeah. I've only seen Che the Argentine. It's good. It's, I mean, they had to cut it into two movies because it's a pretty long thing. Mm-hmm. It's widely known as the films that broke Steven Soderbergh because the apparently the production was a headache, but uh, I have been meaning to check out Che Gorilla, which is the second one, and um, they're definitely worth checking out. So go to Mubi.com slash Wisecrack for 30 days free. That's Mubi.com slash Wisecrack for a 30-day extended free trial. And now, back to the show. All right, so oftentimes when we do movie podcasts and Alec is on, I try not to text Alec with what my angle's going to be, but I think that we both, we couldn't help it. <laughs> I saw th- that you were like, we should call this the existential despair. Oh, so you saw that before you saw the movie. Yeah, I saw it at 9 o'clock last night. But even then, I mean, it's hard. As soon as Buster Bluth is like, I'm trash, <laughs> I, I had a oh, sense that's of what him. was going on. Yeah, Tony Hale. Yeah, so this is essentially exist- existence precedes essence, the movie. So uh, for a little bit of a philosophy 101 refresher, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, essential ex- existentialist philosopher, suggests that one first exists and then one creates oneself through the choices that they make. So that's what it means by existence. You first exist and then you create your essence or rather that there is no predetermined essence. You are radically free. You radically choose. And I think that with the inner voice that they're always talking about, this is essentially what we're meant to equate with their essence. So Buzz listens to his uh, all the all the characters are kind of rebuking a kind of essentialism and have to assert their individuality over their programming, their essential characteristics, or as they put it, their inner voice. So we see that we see this with Buzz. He's always pressing his buttons so that he could listen to his voice box lines when he's trying when he's trying to figure out what to do. There's Woody, who also listens to his inner voice, and he also has this inner voice telling him what his purpose is as a toy. There's Gabby Gabby, which believes that by fixing her voice box, she will fill her essential functionality as a toy that should be loved as a kid. There's Duke Kaboom, who's a scarred soul because he disappointed a kid for not being able to live up to his essential features as promised by the TV ads. And then there's Forky, who sees himself as essentially trash that's what his inner voice or programming tells him, but then Woody eventually convinces him that he's a toy. Alec, is this what you were essentially communicating to me in the in your text late at night that said, Toy Story 4, Holy Jean-Paul Sartre? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, more specifically, you're totally right about everything, but I was thinking about Sartre talks about how 
in life, we often live by kind of scripts. He means that kind of loosely. Um, but he gives the example of say a waiter, you're doing your waiter, you're, you're nice to people. You say uh, you're very polite and it's not necessarily who you are. And it's, it's not your kind of authentic self. Right. And, and so for him, the, the hardest thing to do is to, to break sort of the script of your life and, and live freely, freely, um, to sort of experience radical freedom. Um, one of the, the best ways I've heard this described um, was, uh, God, I don't remember where I heard it, but radical freedom or, or essentially the, the, the terror of radical freedom is being in Baskin Robbins um, and there's like 16 flavors and you're just <laughs> kind of like paralyzed by the fear of making a decision. But radical freedom is the courage to, to finally pick one. Um, I think you could apply that to a lot of ice cream places. But talking about how we sort of lived in this scripted life. I think there's no better example of that than Buzz Lightyear's uh, inner monologue, which is literally his pre-programmed thing. Like that is what he thinks sort of freedom is um, because he heard Woody talking about his conscious. But even we might say that Buzz Lightyear is kind of like this fake freedom because he's going off of this randomly generated voice box. But Woody's is, is kind of like a script given to him by it's not necessarily said who, but like it's this traditional morality that he serves uh, on the child. And the movie arc is kind of him learning to break free from that, right? To, to truly experience freedom, to say that he doesn't have to be with his his kid, that he can live freely on his own. Yeah. So interestingly, to add on to that, so Buzz is constantly trying to use his voice box to figure out what he should do. But there's that part where he keeps on pressing his own button and then the kid Bonnie's mom is about to pick him up to turn him off, but he's trying to communicate to her that they need to go back to the shop because that's where Woody is, not where Forky is. And it's only when he decides that, no, none of these things are going to work. And he just ends up saying, you mm -hmm. left your backpack at the antique shop yeah. <laughs> is where he actually starts putting stock in his freedom rather than his programming. Yeah. The other sort of existence precedes essence, right? Um, so you could think about like a, a hammer. There is, the essence, this kind of like weird metaphorical concept of a hammer, that hammers are for hammering things. And then there's the physical construction of a hammer. And that's kind of like the what philosophers are arguing about uh, and also how it deals with people. But this is seen literally with uh, Forky, who, you know, he thinks that his essence is essentially his existence, that he is trash, so therefore belongs right. in the trash where it's warm. And I thought that was just like another really great thing. And I don't want to derail this whole Sartre thing, but I also think there's something weirdly Freudian about it. Uh, All right, well, let, let's stick with Sartre for a while. <laughs> okay, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not done with this. But Trisha, did you want to jump in? Um, you know. I think all of that is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how much it means to dissect the movie through that lens if you then aren't also sort of like trying to get at it thematically, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I feel like I talk on literally every podcast that I'm on about like theme in, in literature and film and everything like that. Uh, but I'm not sure that I'm not sure that laying this on it philosophically, while I think it's fascinating does a lot to like illuminate it's sort of thematic what I think are thematic issues um because I think that what you're talking about with Woody wanting you know and at the end of the movie he decides that he doesn't actually need to be played with by one kid um he can sort of live on his own and that's kind of what Bo Peep is doing the entire movie um but I don't think there is like enough underpinning his decision thematically mm. to really explain it and so because he explained his choice to stay with Bo Peep. 
Right. And therefore to sort of like really get into the import of this movie. So, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to derail the conversation. You guys have like a ton of philosophical stuff uh, that is clearly like embedded in here. And I think you'd, it'd be hard to deny that the filmmakers were on some degree, like to some level aware of like what they were grappling with philosophically. But I'm not sure that the purpose of, I mean, the purpose of nerding out about it is one thing, but I'm not sure the purpose of that or like the philosophy provides enough sort of substance to really read the movie in a way that I, I don't know. I, I kind of came away with it like, OK, so I'm not sure what this movie is saying. I'm not sure what it's meditating on exactly. Um, but, yeah, maybe it is this. I don't know. Well, let's well, let's make our case, because I argue that the philosophy, although I'm not saying they necessarily had a copy of existentialism as a humanism next to them, but I definitely think that we'll just make a case. And then if you think that we're stretching, then you can say so. But so or at least that, like, you can project this as a kind of transparency over the film. Sure. You know, yeah, um, yeah. We're very death of the author here. That's insane. But all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's do it. Um, so. Woody, I already mentioned he's always listening to his inner voice saying that his purpose as a toy is to be there for his kid, even if the kid doesn't want him. It's only when he faces the reality that Bonnie doesn't need him and listens to his personal feelings that he decides to live as a free agent with Bo Peep. I mean, would you agree with that? Uh, yes, although the thing is, like, the, again, I know you're death of the author, so but the stated thing that they wanted mm -hmm. to make was a rom-com. And so really what they sort of have to do is like bulk up the romance between Bo Peep and Woody in order to really justify Woody's decision to leave his family at the end, which I think is just like, I don't know if they did enough work for me to feel okay about that. But I don't think I don't think I don't think there's anything contradicting that. I mean, it's nothing to do with the fact that he does or does not love her. Bonnie or Bo Peep? Oh, no, Peep? I'm Bo Peep. Oh, okay. But Bo Peep, I don't feel like her philosophy, but maybe you can tell me that, explain it more to me. I don't know that her philosophy is outlined clear, like all that clearly. And so his choice to stay with her, I'm not sure then like equates to some kind of like character moment in a deeply satisfying way. There's an interesting visual thing going on where when he goes to the antique shop, he sees the pedestal that was once mm -hmm. part of Bo Peep. Bo yeah. Peep, her function, her essential function was that she was supposed to keep kids from being scared of the dark because she was a lamp. And mm -hmm. then by divorcing herself from that pedestal, she does kind of decide, no, I choose who I am rather than mm -hmm. the programmer who made me or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that it does fit. I I see where you're coming from, Trisha, in that like, I think some of the, the work like scripting wise is a little bit light in, in Woody's thing. But I think like when I think about structurally, like Jared just said, um, Bo Peep's whole thing is that she is sort of living radically free, but you don't have to put in uh, like Sartre in terms. You could just think that people have their sort of predetermined script to serve their child, to be trash, um, to have tea time uh, with a kid. And all these characters are kind of breaking free from that script or or we could even say function in the case of, of Bo Peep, ma make their own lives or make their own decisions. So I think that is pretty solidly in there, but but I think you're onto something in that, like it's a little light. And I think my only qualm with the movie so far, we'll see if I develop more, is that I loved the trash thing so much with Forky that I Me wish- too. 
I wish that was like, I wish that was the central arc is that Forky learning that he's not trash. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I kind of almost do too. And I hear exactly what you're saying. I fully agree. I think it's in there. Um, yeah. So if you guys have more to say about it, by all means. Well, we'll, we'll make it quick. Great. Uh, but I am going to go even deeper with it. So you might hate me, but <laughs> we're going to do it anyway. All right, guys, before we move on, want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at BetterHelp, the online counseling service. So if you guys have heard about some of the controversies surrounding the company, we have a full breakdown on the channel in our True Detective video. BetterHelp makes finding a certified counselor easy and stigma free. They've even got some new features like groupinars for people who benefit from group therapy and teen counseling for people under the age of 18 seeking help. The sign-up process is like any other therapy service. It asks you a range of questions that can help match you with a counselor who is experienced and whatever you may be dealing with. Once matched, you can book an appointment around your schedule via text, phone, or video chat. You can speak to a counselor on your schedule, whatever's most comfortable for you. So if speaking to an online counselor sounds like the right fit for you, go to betterhelp.com wisecrack to get 10% off your first month of counseling. And now back to the show. Uh, all right, so... Once again, Duke Kaboom already mentioned that the TV ads basically say he ought to be able to scale this huge gap and then he can't do it. So he has this existential crisis, but then he learns not to define himself by that standard. And I already mentioned the forky thing. Here's where I'm going to get a little bit philosophy nerd. And this is why the movie's really weird to me, Alec. And I want to hear what you think about this. Yeah. So in Sartre, existence only precedes essence because there is no God. Yeah. But in this movie, there is a god. Forky is created by Bonnie. And this this contradiction throws the whole thing into a really awkward existential world to me, to the point where I'm still struggling to find out if I like this movie or not, or if I think this movie is a nightmare. <laughs> Here's the thing. Th these toys are not toys anymore. They're basically just people. Th right. This is why the film is weird for me. We're meant to believe that toys are just as existentially free as humans, and they have the freedom to define themselves through the choices they make just as humans do. Now, applying a kind of humanism to toys has been the shtick of Toy Story movies since the first one. But I feel like maybe they took it too far this time, because in previous installments we may map feelings onto them because we f similarly feel that at some times in life we feel like we're losing our social utility so uh, maybe in real life if kids leave the nest parents no longer the kids no longer need the parental functions that their parents offer them so we can project these life experiences onto woody as he no longer feels the quote-unquote parental functions are needed by andy therefore the toys are like a metaphor for how we feel about losing our so social utility but in this movie, they go too existential to the point where we're supposed to believe that just as humans aren't made for any particular reason utility, and thus we are able to create our own selves through our choices and our actions, we're supposed to believe the same thing is for toys, but toys are created with <laughs> utility. They are built to serve children. By denying this programming, these movies are essentially just becoming Pinocchio. They're becoming actual people and denying their programming and they're saying that their programming is just a lie to me this is like unnecessarily postmodern toy story and it's just not as powerful as the previous installments because the previous installments upheld essential things about toys that they're utilities of love in one two and three we're meant to believe that toys are meant to be there for kids to be loved by kids in the third one you might be passed on to another kid, but there will always be a kid out there for you to love and help. And we project that onto us because as a source of comfort, we as humans think that maybe our essential nature as humans is to love each other and that to be there for people, etc. But now that's all thrown out the window. Now, you know, 
Right. We're, we're, we're skeptical of any kind of essential characteristic in our postmodern cultural nightmare. So toys deny their programming nor live a life that's fulfilling to them. Why? They're not humans. They don't live in a godless universe. They have gods. People brought them into this universe for a reason, to love humans. Only us humans have the unique curse of having to salvage an identity from nothingness, goddammit. I, I, uh, I, I kind of disagree that just because humans made them, that that makes them god. That's like saying, if you're a parent, you're the god of your child because you made them. <laughs> Well, but I think there's something pseudo-biblical. Did this ever enter your mind about oh, yeah. oh, how yeah. Gabby yeah, Gabby Gabby has that book that shows that yeah. this is who you ought to be? And perhaps you can equate – I mean, we don't see this in the film, but you could equate that with, like, other toys having instruction manuals and stuff. But I don't know. Um, certainly, even if you were to say that a child or a parent brings you into this into this world – there is something a little bit different with something actually granting you sentience for a particular yeah, but, purpose. I mean, right? Like it's un I don't know if if their sentience is necessarily is necessary to their kind of function as toy. Like obviously our real life toys serve a function and they're not sentient and they're fine as toys. That's right. Um mm-hmm. it's almost like their their sentience or uh, their their essence, if you will, kind of goes above and beyond their sort of physical existence which makes them capable of experiencing freedom. I hear what you're saying, though, Jared, which is that, like, the first three movies very definitely function metaphorically. Like, the first movie is about friendship. You know, Woody loses his place as, like, the best friend of Andy, and he has to, like, make his peace with the fact that Andy is going to have another friend that is closer to him than he is, which is relatable on a kid and an adult level. Yeah. Um, And then the second movie is about, like, the impermanence, right? You know, this idea that they are... If they go to this museum, you know, they can be permanently like loved, but that they're not in relationship then. And so the idea that relationships are impermanent, that's very relatable, very human. And the third movie, too, really grapples with like death. Um, And I I think there's a lot of like the third movie is think about how like think about that incinerator scene at the climax of Toy Story 3, which is one of the best scenes like in animation. As far as I'm concerned, it's incredible. And it really is about something that is human. So that's sort of always the thing about movies is that Mm -hmm. you have to tell a human story. And I am not sure that Toy Story 4 is telling a relatable human story Mm -hmm. because the specificity of the way that the toys function and like operate within the world is so becomes so abstracted from what it means for us to be human. Like, what is the metaphor here? It could be, so to understand through, I mean, through like kind of the thematic lens, I mean, it could just be that. uh, That's very relatable. I I find that very relatable. I mean, I'm tempting to go more to the existential thing because my brain is like, oh, it's like, what do you do when your God abandons you? Which I think (laughs) is kind of the, the existential message of the movie. Yeah. Well, okay, but Sartre would say there God never abandoned you because there never was one. But anyway, in terms of like the family thing, I guess it's uh I mean it could be more See my problem is with the third one, it was kinda like your kids are leaving the nest. So but Andy yeah, goes parenting. off to Andy goes off to college. What do I do now? Well, because your utility as a toy is to be there for humans, I would argue, and that is a an essentialism that I'm comfortable with, then he should go to another kid who will appreciate them. And I guess this one is like, well, if your kid leaves the nest or their kid no longer leaves you, then you just live your own best life or something like that, I I guess. I mean, sure. And I was talking about this too, but like 
it's not enough in there textually, I think, to really make that argument. Because Toy Story 3, it ends up being like, you know, they they realize they have to let Andy go. And then they the whole thing is that they end up deciding, OK, well, as long as we're together, like we'll go to the attic if we're together, we'll go to Bonnie's if we're together. Mm. And Andy ends up making that choice where he gets almost, you know, could go to college with Andy. But then he gets into the box to get donated so he can be with his family mm. and be with Bonnie. And then this movie just undoes all of that. Yeah, the family thing is really lost. It's really lost. And, you know, and this is sort of what I was saying earlier. It's like, is this a Toy Story movie? Like, it we have a completely different cast of characters. Mm -hmm. And so, and you really are not, you know, Woody's sort of arc through the first three movies is completed. And so they're trying to like give him this other arc, but I'm not sure that it has the same sort of like message or relatability, emotional gut punch that those other movies have for the reasons we're talking about. The fact that we have to have this debate. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's asking the same question as Toy Story 3 in that, what do you do when you lose your utility right. or what do you do when you lose your sense of identity, right. whether it's Andy doesn't need you or Bonnie doesn't need you? And it's just a new answer, one that I find less emotionally appealing. I agree. Exactly. So, yeah, if you're going to ask some of the same questions thematically and then answer them in a different way, it feels wrong. Like, I don't, you know, Woody has always sort of been in the wrong Um and that's kind of hid the whole, all of the Toy Story franchise is like, what he thinks one thing, he discovers he's wrong, usually because Buzz sort of accidentally teaches it to him. Mm -hmm. um, and this movie doesn't, he is wrong in a sense, but then like. Wrong because he wants to be there for Bonnie when she doesn't need him. Right. I guess so. But he doesn't really come to a place where like he does end up finding meaning beyond that. At least not in not textually enough, as far as I'm concerned. I think well, it could about, have been really sharpened and cleaned up. Well, what about Ducky and Bunny? Do those not provide any textual justification for the fact that some toys need aid in finding what they want, whether it is a kid or it is a life of freedom or something? I mean, sure. So there's that scene at the beginning where Woody helps Bonnie make Forky, essentially. So he's been, you know, put in the closet. She doesn't need him. He takes it upon himself to, like, go with her to kindergarten. And then that beautiful scene where he gives her all these crafts and helps her create a toy that is going to become, you know, like, important to her, comforting her, is going to be close to her. But in his reasons for doing that at the time are strictly self-interested. He it, It's making him feel relevant. That's the only reason he cares about Forky is because he sees he sees it as like, okay, well, as long as I'm taking care of Forky, then in a way Bonnie needs me. So in a way I have like meaning. And But if he had been able to realize, say, at the climax of this movie or you know, near it when Bo Peep is like, why? Why do you need to go back? Why do you need Forky? And if Woody had sort of come to a place of like actually providing Bonnie with that, even though it, it has nothing to do with me, is actually meaningful. Yeah. Then this life of like matchmaking kids with toys that they like form at the end would be this sort of beautiful completion of that arc. This like, oh, that that action itself helping kids find toys that they do love. That is useful, even if it isn't me. But that is what he does at the end. Yes. But I just don't think it's thematically connected enough. Like the dots aren't all the way connected in a way. With what he did for Forky. Yeah. I, I think Go I agree because what you just said I agree with but I like I think almost the existentialism uh uh not doesn't kind of uh conflicts with that a little bit so it gets um 
like buried a little bit. Okay. Go on. I, I mean, I don't have much to say, but just the idea that Woody <laughs> is now a matchmaker for toys and kids, I think is something right. that was lost on me until Trish just said it. <laughs> yeah. So d- they didn't do enough. They didn't connect the dots. Yeah. I also had some very, very famous children yelling during very sure key did. parts of the movie. <laughs> so like during that whole speech where where Woody talks to Gabby Gabby and they have this emotional connective moment, I have no idea what was said during that speech. Right. Well, so then, so here's my question. So what is then the metaphor? What is the translatable thing? Because there's no like human equivalent to that. Like what, what are we supposed to, you know, matchmaking kids and toys? Okay, that's great comforting kids maybe finding something that provides comfort to kids what is the human like sort of thing that we can then take away from walk away from this movie and say like oh i need to rethink this about my life or think about this role i think i I think it's still like making your your own choices or like questioning the sort of narrative that you've been given because even if that new narrative that you make for yourself or that new meaning you make in your life is to connect kids um that is still like an action you do. Whereas some of the toys are clearly um, just right. out there to, to like hang out and live their best lives. Like, you know, the, the, the party scene. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely has something to do with constructing your own identity, not allowing yourself to be uh, pigeonholed by any particular set of societal standards or something like that. And just moving on. Now, I think I share your, disappointment that there seems to be a lot of overlap between that and Toy Story 3. Yeah. But yeah, to me there is no metaphor. It is just exactly. it is it is just that it's just literal in yeah. that in that Woody is now a human. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's just not as fun to me. I don't know. I definitely didn't I didn't cry in this movie. I cried I in Toy cry Story in this 3. I didn't cry either. I was bawling during Toy Story 3. Yeah. yeah. Well, because, again, you're telling a story about toys, but you're telling a story about, like, humans and feeling, you know, feeling lost or abandoned by people you care about, like, wondering what's going to happen at the end of it, like, finding comfort in friendships that you have, even when you're facing really dire circumstances. All of those things are really human. This is so specific. It's so, this is a toy. This toy is not a human in any way. Right. Except in that he's existentially a human. (laughs) Right. But then his. Yeah. What he decides to make of his life isn't something that any human can make of their life because there's not metaphorically like something there. Okay, I really like this movie. I want to like say that. I mean, I really, really like this movie. Yeah. I mean, as far as putting a one to one metaphor on helping toys find their identity, I mean, I think it just could be, I don't know, somebody who was Oh, this is lame, but born into a family of doctors, spends their first 40 life as a doctor, and then in retirement they decide to, I don't know, join the Peace Corps yeah, or something. Sure. Something like that. Right. Again, and, and you know, if you think about Woody's arc as moving from fundamentally selfish, and especially at the beginning of Toy Story, and he becomes increasingly selfless as the series goes on, this could be a really beautiful completion of that arc where he takes himself out of the picture and is like, it isn't about me and a kid anymore. It is still about, though— kids and mm-hmm. toys finding love and happiness and comfort together but i just like i wish there'd be more of that i wish there's more meat were, of that but you think that's what they were going for 
Uh, I would venture to say probably. I mean, I just think that's who Woody is. So, like, you know, if you're looking from just from a writing standpoint, you know, I'm a screenwriter. And so that's why I like <laughs> that's why I'm doing this from a screenwriter perspective and not a philosophy perspective. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but like, I just feel like you always look into the character and you like find out what is going on within the character. What is necessarily uh, the, a question that a character when you put them in a certain situation would ask or would do what's baked into that character. Yeah. And Woody finding himself in a closet, in Bonnie's closet, is a really interesting place to start. And then didn't kind of go, it didn't all the way go. So, um, but yeah, it, it, and it is like really, it's also super contained. You know, basically all of this entire movie takes place in that antique store, which is an amazing amazingly animated like yeah. place it's the whole movie looked it's amazing ridiculous that that opening scene where they're saving the rv toy the, the rain looked so good oh yeah um yeah and it, did your theater freak out at the puppets oh yeah i oh, mean they're, they're frightening <laughs> are they supposed to be are all puppets like that creepy or is that a goosebumps kind of reference it definitely said goosebumps to me but that's just because i grew up reading those books and what was that one called I don't even remember. I, well, remember. all ventrilo they're dummies. They're ventriloquist yeah. dummies. And those are always creepy. Like there's Twilight Zone episodes about it, you know. So it's it's sort of like long, long understood. No one likes a ventriloquist dummy. It's a nightmare object. <laughs> uh, but yeah. No, so yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm I wish they'd done a little bit more, but you know, what can you do? And this I think is like for me, I walked away from it just more interested in like franchise this moment that we're in of like reboots and franchises and ip and all of that stuff just how do we make it keep on going right and, and um, now that they're installments it's going to go again probably probably i don't think that this is any better of a conclusion to me the only purpose of doing this is to, is to open it up to more installments yeah. well they are making a 10 episode short form series called Forky Asks a Question, which will be debuting on Disney Plus in okay. November 2019. So there's definitely already content coming down the pipeline. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Hanks has said that this, for all intents and purposes, he thinks this is the last one. You know, Tim Allen said the same thing. So did they not say that about the third one? They did, yeah. But that was Lassiter, and Lassiter's gone. So, I, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I will mean, be curious to see. I mean, you know, Pixar—they're caught in a place because you have a lot of brilliant brains over there, and they understand that some things are not sequel ready, or some things are not sequely—they're not franchisable in a sat narratively satisfying way. Now, they don't unfortunately get to decide their own fate some of the time, but yeah. they do have comparative freedom by contrast to a lot of other creators so you know pete doctor said inside out it's one movie and that's we got one you know and it's so far it's i'm a, sorry i'm really cynical no yeah. i mean it, it, true i'm just saying speaking to the current reality in you know june 2019 this is what we're working with yeah um so we'll just have to see you know maybe they maybe we will get more um and i think toy story is likelier for that than some of their other things like um but I don't know. I, I just Someone think... told me, and is this true that they're creating a Toy Story world in either Disney World, Disneyland, one of the Disneys, and somebody told me, it's like, oh, well, they just had to make sure that younger kids like Christopher Nolan's son are, <laughs> <laughs> are um, you know, keen on Toy Story so that they'll go to the parks. I mean, I, they're not beyond making a decision like that. Oh, definitely not. No, I, I wouldn't say so. I just, 
I think this particular movie came out of a desire to, you know, from from Pixar creators to tell a story. And they said so explicitly in the same universe. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a quote from John Lasseter, which said, Toy Story 3 ended Woody and Buzz's story with Andy so perfectly that for a long time we never talked about doing another one. And then when they had this idea for the new one, they got really excited about it and they threw it into development. Um, and they, But they said, again, we wanted to make a romantic comedy. We wanted to make something that was in the same universe. Not well, necessarily. You would, you would agree that if they tried to make a romantic comedy, they failed. Right? Of course they did. Because which... the, like the, the, the interaction between him and Bo Peep is minimal. That's the other thing, and that's kind of what I was trying to hint at earlier. Which, which is, is why like, Death of the Author is a is a justifiable position. So we can get into that later. <laughs> um, no, but it's like he, Woody and Bo Peep don't have anything real to connect over. So the romantic plotline doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Because other than the fact that they were ostensibly together during the first two movies, they Bo Peep has never had very much to do, which I've always thought is a shame because these movies are so male heavy and Annie Potts is amazing. And like, I always wanted there. When, and then when Jesse came along, I was like, oh, well, we have Jesse now at least. And then they got rid of Bo Peep immediately mm-hmm. <laughs> and gave us Barbie. Okay. Anyway, but um, so I, I just, I love Bo Peep and I love the idea of making her a character, but she and Woody don't have a ton of like substantial reasons to connect with each other. Yeah. They kind of... They kind of like skipped ahead to like, oh, they're just in love. They're just in love. Don't worry about it. They're in love. And they yeah. didn't have to explain to us why. And I don't know. But so, yeah. Romantic comedy? I don't think so. Fun yeah. action movie? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Very fun and very clever. All right, Alec, you were going to bring in some Freud. What's what's the uh, the Freud dude got to say? Well, I'll do Freud very briefly, but I have another lens to read this movie. The quick thing I'll say about Freud is that um, – Freud thought that there was like a a death instinct or a death drive that competed with our desire for like life and creation. Um, And the best way that I've ever understood this is like the, the sort of desire for non-existence because it's safe, warm and cozy. Exactly how Forky describes the trash. Mm. (laughs) So it's kind of like the, the desire to return back to like our state before being born, like in our mother's womb. Anyway, my real other reading, and I want to know what you guys think of this, is that, so I think you picked up on some of the kind of biblical stuff. There's this whole theme of shepherding. Obviously, there's Bo Peep and her sheep, but you have lost toys, um, lost mm. children, especially at the end. Mm. Um, and then like Woody in the beginning saves a, dist- a distressed member, the, the RC car of his flock. So, so he's almost like, you know, mm. tending to his herd. However, I think... This is my hot take for the the day is that uh, you could possibly read Bo Peep as Satan. And I mean that like in a Church of Satan cool way and not like a moral panic way. <laughs> okay. Okay, go on. Yeah. So essentially you have the good shepherd, which is like Jesus, God, whatever, maybe possibly Woody. But then you have Satan who's constantly tempting uh, people from the flock away from God, uh, which is what Bo Peep is doing, right? You have... Bonnie as God, the child, or at least their sort of divined purpose uh, to to care for these kids, and uh, and uh, Bo Peep and her crowd are constant are are trying to pull people away from that to live freely, right? So, um, it's just the idea of like Satan as like the rebel and also like the tempter. Now, also biblically speaking, like the tempter often gets equated with, for instance, like women, like Eve tempting Adam and all that stuff. You don't say. Yeah. So. Um, 
So rather than living for God or Bonnie or their kid or whatever, the toys are living for their own pleasure and serving no master. Um, and there's lots of examples of this. So toys are essentially like promiscuous. Like there's that scene where the soldier toys are talking about all the different kids they're going to play with. So instead of being in sort of the godly, almost like monogamous relationship to your child, they are fooling around, so to speak. Then we have the club scene with Duke Kaboom. So there's like a lot of hedonism, which is what the Church of Satan is all about. Then you have toys like Ducky and Bunny are waiting for salvation, but it's never going to come. They're going to stay there for the rest of their life. So you have the sort of like anti-shepherd of Bo Peep and now Woody who are freeing people from the lie of religion. Also very important is that Gabby is initially seen as evil because she wants to usurp her God-given place in the world. Um, and by no fault of her own, she has a defective voice box and wants to uh, take away the voice box of someone who was given, you know, from God or, or, or destined, which is Woody. Um, but by the end, Woody renounces his old worldview and gives it to her, which is kind of like a, you know, oftentimes when it comes to uh, usurping nature or, or going outside of your place in the world, it is considered, you know, against the will of God. And that is essentially like what's happening here. Wait, but why does Gabby why want to usurp her God-given place? What do you mean by that? Well, because she was born with like a, a defective voice box, right? And I think in a lot of- Oh, was she born? Are you sure she was yeah, born? Yeah, yeah, she says that. Oh, like, she was, she was defective right out of the box. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay, I missed that. So, so she wasn't a, broken. A lot of times in classic theology, you, you get this thing that if something's wrong with you, like God made you that way and you should appreciate it rather than trying to usurp God's will. So I thought that was also interesting. Okay, yeah, I forgot that. I did not catch that detail. Interesting. I I mean, look, like, I mean, you equated it to Satanism. I just, in the Church of Satan kind of way, uh, I equated it to kind of a more postmodern condition. Either way, the movie is definitely trying to subvert any huge you know, overarching systems of meaning, or at least trying to draw skepticism on those, which I just think isn't necessary for a story about toys and love. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And in go back and going back to what you were saying, Alec, I'm not sure that that works if the ending is Woody and then instead of because truly Woody and Bo are not freeing toys mm -hmm. in the same way. They're not like creating some kind of merry band of outlaw toys right. that's just like roaming about. They are uniting toys with children. They are helping toys find that monogamous relationship with children. That's like sort of how they end up this, you know, how they end the story which is not at all like philosophically sort of what you're talking about. Right. Um, and, and goes back to being about like, you know, we, we construct meaning and we construct our identity through our relationships with people, which others, you know, other humans and things like that, which I think is what the first three movies in the franchise are about, you know? And so like this idea again of Woody being embedded in the family and like, we do that together. We are a family. Like we stay together that idea has always sort of like undergirded Woody's philosophy. I mean, contrast, I, I was looking this up last night, like for just a fun exercise, take a look at the Toy Story 3 poster. It's got like a huge number three in the middle of it and then packed all the way out to the corners are all of the characters. Every toy from Andy's room, all of the new additions to the cast. Like it's you can see everybody's face. They're all kind of just smiling around this like the, the big number three. Mm. And then take a look at the Toy Story 4 poster and it's Woody standing there. You, you have Bo Peep, who is essentially a new character. Like we recognize her. Right. Again, they gave her so little to do in the previous movies that she might as well be a new character. And honestly, just because of how far animation has come, she's unrecognizable, you know, other than beyond like the amazing voice acting there by Annie Potts. But so you have Bo Peep and then you have Buzz Lightyear sort of standing the third, you know, the third behind the two of them. And then 
only the new characters from this movie. Mm-hmm. No Rex, no Ham, no Potato Heads, no Jesse, no Bullseye. Like, it it really is just sort of separating Woody from his family, which they've gone to a lot of trouble <laughs> to, like, show us is meaningful to yeah. him. And in a way, like, those characters have nothing to do in this movie. They sit in that RV the entire time. And then finally at the end, you're trying to give us this emotional scene where Woody is leaving them. And I was like, I want to feel sad about this because I think I should. Yeah. Because I think this should be deeply meaningful. But they have done, they've grappled with it in no way at all. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah. What are we doing, Josh Cooley? <laughs> All right, guys, before we move on, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at Twillery. So Twillery are dress shirts that breathe and do not sweat. So most performance shirts are polyester and they'll feel like plastic and all that heat gets trapped up in there and you can get kind of gross. But with Twillery, they're mostly cotton. They've got a great hand feel to them. They're easy to care for, wrinkle free, and they breathe. That's the best part about it. Don't sweat. So you're always going to need more than one shirt. So if you buy in bulk, you can pay $55 for a shirt that a competitor would sell for over 100 bucks. You can get 25% off your purchase by going to twillery.com slash showme and entering the promo code showme. Once again, that's twillery.com slash showme and enter the promo code showme at checkout. And now back to the show. One last thing I want to bring up before we go into the mailbag. I'm not usually one that harps on the logic of the world, but... In this one, I was particularly kind of bothered with, wait, when do they, it's, for most of the movie, I was to understand that whenever Woody is just speaking, not using his voice box, other humans can't hear that. It's some sort of inner monologue between other toys, but then sometimes the humans can hear that. Actually, that's not true because in the first movie, Woody looks Sid dead in the face and says, so play nice with his own mouth and his own voice and Sid does hear him. Okay. So- I think it's just that they don't talk around humans and kids. But sometimes I feel like they were in this movie and it was just kind of weird. It's like, okay, are they in earshot? Not in earshot. Hint, then at this point, yeah. they are at this point. I probably just shouldn't be paying attention to that. <laughs> no, and this movie too stretches credulity about humans never see them. Yeah. Because they're moving so freely. So much. Like they're, they, the baby buggy goes out of the antique store door mm. Two feet behind the antique store owner, and she somehow doesn't see, notice, hear, feel, sense it moving yeah. directly next to her. They're just moving with so much impunity, and they do like sort of play with it a little where they're like, He went in the aisle. Why would anyone do that? That's so dangerous. I saw, but it, he gets away with it. Yeah, I saw an internet meme, or maybe it was a uh, Reddit post or something. But do you ever think they're going to make the movie in which mankind recognizes that toys are sentient, <laughs> and then that is the that's the conflict of the movie? What to do? I'd watch it. Yeah, I'd watch it <laughs> definitely. Yeah. All right, guys, we're going to go into the mailbag. Hit us up with an email at movies at wisecrack.co or send us a voicemail at two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. That is two one elf gut. 07 or 21 Elf Hut 07. We got a voicemail from Anonymous about John Wick 3. Hey, what up, Rice Crackers? I'm a huge fan of the pod, by the way. Um, it's called a John Wick 3. Um, thought it was a great discussion, but one thing and I thought was pretty interesting, I went and saw the movie actually with my girlfriend who used to be a ballerina and uh, enjoyed the movie as much as I suppose any girlfriends in the audience could, but uh, thought that it was almost in a matter of fact way pointed out that the scene in which the ballerina is 
uh, falling down and coming back up uh, repeatedly uh, during the scene when John Wick enters and talks to Angelica Houston is the is the portion of Swan Lake in which uh, the dying swan is doomed to dancing until the character dies and then is reborn and forced to dance again until it dies, um, which she thought was like common knowledge and I didn't realize this at all and thought that this would be something the wisecrack people would totally love. Uh, obviously, uh, thematically links up with John's situation, sort of being intermittently pulled in and out of, of the assassin world. Uh, at the end of Swan Lake, and as, a, as the main characters in Swan Lake end up killing themselves in order to deprive the, the sort of arch villain of any sort of power, uh, which which definitely links up with uh, the Bowery King and John sort of going to war with the high table. Anyway, I thought it would be cool. Um, uh, keep up the good work, and look forward to listening to new episodes. Thank you, Anonymous. Yeah, I like that a lot, especially when you consider the last act of John three, John Wick 3, as I mentioned in the last podcast, is about him not wanting to spend the last days of his life, or the last years of his life, excuse me, being a assassin until it ultimately kills him. But I did not catch that. That's super cool. Thank you for bringing that in. Uh, have you got? Have you seen John Wick 3? Not no. yet, but I love the first two, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, man, well, you got to see the third one. I know, one. I'm excited so about it. All right, we got an email from Andrew. He says, want to talk a little bit about Audition. Have you seen Audition? Oh, you don't watch horror movies. Never mind. Absolutely not. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So he, Andrew says, the color white may mean pure, but I believe that is also associated with death and the dead in Japan. This is probably why Sadaku looked like she did in Ringu, which was released a little before Audition was made. Asami may seem angelic, but when she's just sitting in her apartment looking at the floor with her hand or with her hair over her face, she is ghostly. I like this point a lot, Andrew, because I know that colors definitely have different meanings in different cultures, and I was not caught up on the meaning of white in Japan. It definitely, that makes it even more interesting, because when I see her in the movie through an American lens, she looks like an angel decked out in all white, but it might have been some foreshadowing of doom in Japan, so that's pretty awesome. If you ever decide you have the stomach for horror movies, (laughs) I can't recommend Audition enough. Um, Duly noted. Okay, um, da-da-da-da-da... All right, we got another one about John Wick 3 from Baba Booey, which I'm assuming is not the Baba Booey from Howard Stern. Or what if it is? Says, hey, then I'd be very <laughs> surprised. Hey, guys, been listening for a while now and just saw John Wick 3 and listened to the Wisecrack episode about it. I noticed you guys compare the brutality of John Wick to that of Buster Keaton and Jackie Chan. Do you think there's some kind of point to be made about true comedy getting more and more violent over the years? Chaplin and Keaton getting slapped around, Jackie Chan beat, uh, beating up and maybe killing a few guys, then John Wick killing a whole room. Just food for thought. Also, a quick movie recommendation, Look Who's Back is a 2015 film about Hitler coming back to modern-day Germany and everyone thinking he's an actor. It has some great Borat-slash-Bruno-style satirical racism revealing real racism stuff, but also gets really meta about how it's based on a book and has something really intelligent to say in the end. But it's on Netflix, and I haven't checked it out, but I'm sure it's on Amazon, too. Have you have either of you seen that movie? I've never even heard of it. I have heard of it. I have not seen it. I haven't seen I haven't it either. Seen it. Yeah. As far as uh, comedy getting more violent, I mean, I think if you draw the line between, you know, Keaton to Jackie Chan to John Wick, but in general, I think John Wick is just, there's not a lot of that kind of action comedy happening at all. So it's hard for me to say that there's any been a real general trend towards that, because anytime you get that kind of non-CGI action comedy, you're just lucky you get it at all. But yeah, I'm hard pressed to think of other examples that could build that conclusion that comedy slapstick comedy is getting more violent 
I mean, there was a, you know, definitely a moment of action comedies in the 90s and stuff yeah. like that, like Shane Black and Lethal Weapon. And like, you could argue the Die Hard, very easily, the Die Hard is a comedy and stuff, you know, some of those movies. Yeah. But the comedy isn't physical comedy right, as much it isn't. with Jackie Chan. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have not seen John Wick 3. I'm really excited to see it. I don't know if I would classify the first two as comedies other than there's something kind of delightful about just seeing Keanu Reeves kick so much ass in such like a like in just such an unbelievable way, an excessive way. So I wouldn't say they're comedies. I think there are comedic elements to right. them. Yeah. But the third one really goes balls oh, to does the wall it? with some of the some of the action is a little bit more <laughs> I, I, it, it's something that you want to see in a crowded theater sure. because people are constantly wincing and laughing at the same time because they just can't believe just the sheer brutality and the sheer disposability of people's lives. Well, what about something like Deadpool then? Like Deadpool is horrifyingly violent, but at the yeah. same time really funny. And a lot of it is the physical comedy because, of course, he can't you know die and everything like that. Yeah, but I mean that is also very baked into plot, whereas sure. with Jackie Chan – you know, it, it all of the com- not all of it, but a lot of the comedy was in the fact that oh, you know, he's having a guy hold his knife while punching two other guys, then taking the knife from him and then killing him with it. Right. So that's the kind of physical comedy that John Wick deals with that you don't see a lot these days. Yeah. But also because it just requires giant stunt teams, which of course don't really yeah, which is just tough to compile these days. Anyway, we're going to go and wrap it up for today. So send us a voicemail at 213-534-8807 or emails at movies at wisecrack.co. Once again, that's .co, not .com. I want to thank my guests, Trisha and Alec, for joining me. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And we'll see you next week. Until then, peace.